Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. And we're reading out of uh, Revelations 19 this morning. It says, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. May God bless the reading of his word. In 2007, January, outside the D.C. metro, a man stood with his violin played several pieces, majestic pieces of of music from Bach to Franz Schaubert to Massenet as thousands of people just walked by. His little violin case was open. Somebody threw a dollar in. 
one person finally stopped and listened for about 30 seconds and then kept walking and went on to their, their next metro stop. But nobody took the time to notice that the person playing was Joshua Bell, one of the most famous uh, accomplished musicians in the entire world. Only three days before that, he had sold out eight consecutive shows in Boston. Averaging, average ticket price was around $500 a ticket to see him play. It was an experiment done by the Washington Post to sort of draw out a problem that exists in our hearts, which is this. If we never pause and notice one of the greatest musicians in the world, how much are we running by and missing in our daily moments of life every day? Look in verse 11. It says this, John says, then I saw heaven opened. Notice it says, I saw heaven opened, past tense. This is not just something he says, we will see this. He says, I saw, I saw this opened. Now remember the book of Revelation comes from the word apocalypse. It's a Greek word that it, it doesn't refer to this cataclysmic, one-time, uh, terrifying event. The word apocalypse literally means unveiling. It means to pull the curtain back. What's already here to one day fully be seen. And John is telling us the curtain was pulled back and he fully saw it. And this morning what he fully sees, and he, he's pulling the curtain back for us, is something that we need to uh, help, if you're familiar with this concept, to develop our understanding of the second coming of Christ, that is, to develop our understanding of the return of Christ. Because there will indeed be a moment where Jesus physically returns to this world and is physically manifest to us in the same way that He was manifest in the ancient Near East, in what we understand to be 0 AD. He will indeed be that. But that reality and that concept and that doctrine is actually really foreign to much of our daily life and is really foreign uh, to much of the outside world. Because what it feels like to the outsider or, or even the skeptic or the one who's unfamiliar with much of the Bible is that if he's going to return, and that's meant to be impactful, what's he doing right now? As in, if he was here and that's meant to be impactful, and he's going to return and that's meant to be determinative, why such a gap? But there's a word that's in this text, and it's throughout the book of Revelation, the word come. Now, when you and I use the word come, we here uh, get to a place where you presently are not. But the word throughout the book of Revelation is says, come, coming, come Lord Jesus, is meant to be wrapped up in this concept of unveiling, of the curtain being pulled back. And it's telling us this, that the Jesus that John sees, that's opened up for him, 
is not a Jesus who is absent and present in this gap between his first coming and his second coming. It's a Jesus that is here and is present and is moving more and more into our world, more and more into our experiences, and more and more into our hearts. And what the tendency of what darkness and sin will do to your heart is try to convince you that his presence is not here and is not on the move and is not moving closer into your life and more into our culture. But John is telling us that one day, whether or not you deny that, there will be a day where the curtain is fully pulled back and the rug is pulled out from under us. And what you think you're standing on will immediately become the quicksand that it truly is. And you will finally face this man. And you will see him face to face and he will come with questions. And here's what they are. One, what will you do with his weapon? Look back in the text with me. In the second half of this text, beginning in verse 11, he says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, this white horse, this is an image of war. Uh, it's a war horse. And it's confirmed in the later part of the passage when it says he comes to judge and to make war. In verse 12, we're told about this man, his eyes are like a flame of fire. That is, he sees through everything. He doesn't just see us, he doesn't see around us, he sees through us. And then it says, uh, on his head are many diadems. Uh, In the ancient Near East, kings uh, would sometimes wear multiple crowns to signify their reigns over the many countries. So for however many nations and countries that they ruled and reigned and had captured, that's often how many crowns they would wear. And then it says uh, in, in the next verse, that he has a name only known to himself. Uh, In the ancient Near East, if you knew someone's name, especially a god, uh, you could exercise control over them. So this image is suggesting to us that this man is under no one's control. And then in verse 15, if you skip down there, it says, um, his mouth comes with a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is an image from Psalm chapter 2. That this man will come and he will just take over all of the nations. And then it says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. Which is the phrase that John Steinbeck got his book, The Grapes of Wrath, from. But the images are telling us this. This man will come not to reason Not to ask your opinion on what you think truth is and how you think this world should be run. He will come and take over. And he will come with a weapon. And the weapon is a sword. Now what's interesting about him coming with a weapon is that if you read the rest of the text, he's a man coming into battle And there is no battle. He just shows up and it's over. And what most commentators will say is the reason there is no battle is because the definitive war was fought on the cross 
when Jesus once and for all broke the power of evil in this world. And what he's doing since then is as the tide of the war has turned, he is fighting many small, teeny battles with his sword. And his sword is his word. This is what we're told in verse 12 when it says his name is, verse 13, he is just called the word of God. So here's what's happening in the text. This man is coming with his weapon, and he's not asking, he's not fighting the battle. He's going to ask you with his weapon how you will respond to the ultimate battle. And here's what we're getting. You and I are getting a picture of how the Bible is meant to work in everyone's life. See, what the presence of Christ is doing is coming closer and closer and closer to you and I through the power and presence of Christ in His Word, so that when you hear it read and when you hear it preached, one theologian he called the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God, because what he meant is that when Christ is proclaimed in that, it is the very presence of this one who came and will return with His sword staring at us. And what He's doing is telling us who we are and what life is about. The author of Hebrews explains this image very well for us when he put it this way in Hebrews 4. He says, The Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, here's what this sword does. It exposes our spiritual nakedness. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, if you go back, this is to Genesis chapter 3. Here's what happens in the early part of the Bible. Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden with perfect rest. Everything is as it's meant to be. They're in perfect communion with God, and they're in perfect communion with one another. And the expression of that perfection is that they are naked and unashamed. But the moment that they rebel and decide to become their own Savior and their own Lord, God comes after them, and their reaction to this is that they have to put fig leaves on it because they realize they're radically unfit to be their own Savior and their own Lord. And so what they do is they collect these fig leaves to accommodate their inability to live with their own nakedness. And you and I do this too. Look, I mean, think about this. Why are some of us so unable to imagine our kids not being better than everyone else's? So that when they have problems or struggles in front of anybody else, it feels like we're dying. Why is it that we are so aggressively perfecting our reputations? Or why when things are hard or stressful do we have to turn to things to kind of numb the pain? Look, you know what those are? Those are fig leaves. 
There are ways for us to cover our own nakedness, to try to be our own saviors. And what we're doing is we're trying to grab something that's as thin and protective as a leaf. And here's what Christ is doing in your life is that He is moving closer and closer to you in those particular situations with His sword and trying to poke that off of you and trying to strip that thing away. And He's giving you two options. Either to double down and keep pretending with fig leaves or to finally fall on your knees and face this man. And the myth that you've got to admit is that we cannot live suppressing our pasts anymore. I've had this conversation a couple times this summer with different people. Why is it some of us still have regrets about things that happened 20 or 30 years ago? Now, I know most of you in this room um, profess faith in Christ. But let's just pretend for a minute that uh, maybe we don't. And look, if there is no God and none of this is true, why can't we just walk away from our regrets? You know, the things that are, they just happened. They're just a part of our past. They don't affect us now. Why can't we just walk away from that? I'll tell you why, because we deep down, we know what William Faulkner was saying. Do you remember his famous line from his book, Requiem for Anam, when he said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Look, everybody knows that to their core, whether you believe or you pretend that you don't. We're, we're not going to be able to walk away from these things, from all our fig leaves. And Jesus is coming into your life right now, and He's coming into this room, and He's asking you, what are you going to do with my weapon? Are you going to pretend with fig leaves anymore? Or are you going to acknowledge me that I've come to take over? He will come with a second question, though. What will we do with his invitation? See, the weapon, is it just meant to scare us into conformity? Because if he comes comes with a weapon, it begins to sort of feel like uh, it's going to be followed with a threat, but it's actually just the opposite here. Look, Jesus with his sword to expose you is not for intimidation or humiliation, It's actually for invitation. Because look what it says earlier in the text in verse 7. He says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Look, Jesus comes with His sword into your life to expose you, not to humiliate you, but to prepare you for a feast. To prepare you for the greatest presence the world has ever tasted. To offer us the joy of a wedding feast. 
Now, let me explain where this is coming from about how Jesus is working this way. Look, because in the ancient Near East, engagement and marriage worked a little bit different in its process than now. Here's how it would work. If you wanted to marry somebody, what the man would do is he would go to a girl, a woman's father, and and he wouldn't bring a ring, and he wouldn't ask permission. He would bring money to purchase her. And he would give this large sum that would be sufficient enough to secure her as his bride to come. And then to secure that purchase, what the father and the groom would do is they would pour a glass of wine and toast it to seal the engagement. And then the groom would leave for an undisclosed amount of time and go and prepare a place for his bride and work hard at making a place for her to come and dwell forever. And while he's gone, she was to prepare herself for the, for the groom to get her linens ready, to prepare her life, to get everything in order that he may come. And she did not know when he was going to come back. There was no, let's get married on August 24th. She was just supposed to be ready and would prepare at any possible moment. And at an undisclosed moment, the groom would return with his army of friends and he would begin to shout, the day of our wedding is here. The bridegroom is here. Come out and come be with me. And then the wedding would begin immediately and would begin a celebration that would last a week and sometimes even two weeks long. Now, there's a reason that in the Gospels, Jesus talks about himself this way. Because here's how the Gospel works. Jesus wants you. And not just to hang out. He wants you in an intimate, beloved way. And to demonstrate that, what he does is in order to make you his, he goes to purchase you. Not with money, but with his life. And to seal that purchase, what he does is he pours a glass of wine and says, this is the cup of the new covenant that is sealed for you and I's engagement. And then in John 14, he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. That in my Father's house, there are many, many rooms. And I will go make a place for you to dwell forever. And he tells us that we are to begin to prepare for his bridegroom return. And he will come at a time that we have no idea what it is. But when he comes, it will be to usher us in to the most joyful celebration ever. And what the text says is that when he comes, what it will do is it will be his army of friends. And this is, this is the only time it says this in the New Testament, the word hallelujah. It's like George Frederick Handel's 
choir in four blasts, hallelujah, 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 the wedding has begun. Friends, what this means is that heaven, when Jesus comes to gather you, is going to be more like a Saturday night wedding than it will be a Sunday morning church service. that will produce everlasting joy and communion forever. There was a study done a couple years ago on the happiest state in America. And you know, it wasn't uh, New York, it's not California, and it's not Florida. The happiest state they found was Louisiana. And the study said the reason Louisiana is the happiest state is because it is a cultural, it's a culture of communal festivals. And it's what makes Louisiana so great and what makes people so joyful is their year is built around communities of people coming together to feast and to celebrate and to rejoice. And often they're doing this in the most meaningless things. In in things that are actually probably not worth celebrating. But they don't know they're doing this, but what they're doing is they're accidentally tasting the supper to come. The joy that will never end. Look, If you've ever thought about giving your life to Christ in a regretful way or wondering whether or not it was worth it because of everything around you in this world, you've not read Revelation 19 because what we're told here is that what awaits you is a party, is the best wedding celebration you've ever been to. The best people, the best food, the best music, the best table of fellowship you have ever imagined, the best celebration ever created, the best aesthetics ever imagined. That will go on and on and on. And at the end of that maybe simple night, you will never go home alone. You will never feel lonely. You will not be the one waiting at the end of the party alone, hoping to get an Uber by yourself. You will all go home with your groom forever in the greatest intimacy you've ever dreamed of. So so stop living under the pressure that you have to get everything out of this life. Stop walking around looking at everyone else's life with envy and with worry that they're getting more out of this life, that they're thinking wiser than you, that they've gotten something out of this that you've missed out on because what waits from Revelation 19 is something that says the only thing that you can miss out on in this world is if you don't live in the joy and hope of every moment knowing that this wedding feast is coming. And friends, you are invited to that. And I'm inviting you now. 
what are you going to do with this invitation? Why, why would you ever resist this and ignore this? Because Jesus is asking you from this text, why would you turn this down? But here's his third question for you. What are you going to do with your life? See, if you face that weapon and you receive this invitation, what now? Notice in verse 14, he says this. The armies of heaven that are following this man, says they're arrayed in fine linens, white and pure, and they're following him on the white horses. That is, this man who's heading out to battle to ask people how they're going to respond to the battle with his, with his sword, there are groups of people following him arrayed in these fine linens. Now, what are these? Well, if you go back to verse 8, we're told that these fine linens, bright and pure, are the ones that are the linens that are preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you actually have this image of people in wedding garments going out to fight battles. Now, it's sort of an ironic twist almost. But what they're doing is they're following their leader out in his battle and in his questions, and they're passing out wedding invitations. See, as the Savior and the King goes out with his sword and he asks these questions, his people who he has invited play a role in this. And it's to follow him and to ask the same questions of our world. See, there are, there are two feasts in this text. Do you notice this in verse 17 forward going down? It's a dark feast. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Look, everybody is going to end their life with a feast. It's either the joyful wedding one or the one where the evil you bow down to will eat you itself. And if you've met Jesus and taken his invitation, he is asking you in this moment to look out at your world and to pass out the same invitation. See, the, the design of the gospel is never just for our personal experience. It's not just for you and you alone. It's meant to redress you and prepare you to be a part of something that is changing this world. God never comes just to bless you. He comes to bless you so that you will go be a blessing. You know, like Becky and I never go to a restaurant that's amazing and look at each other and be like, don't tell anybody about this. Let's just keep this between ourselves. The, the moment you taste something incredible, you think we have to tell everybody how great this is. 
That's how the gospel is supposed to work. Is that you meet Jesus in such a profound, deep way, and He meets you at the bottom of your messes and changes them and draws them into the hope of His wedding celebration and fills your cup in such a way that your cup cannot do anything but overflow. And if you know that that wedding is coming, how can you not want your friends there to taste this and celebrate with you? David Brooks, New York Times uh, journalist, had an article a couple years ago called The Moral Bucket List. And in it, he said there's two types of virtues. There's resume virtues and there's eulogy virtues. He said resume virtues are things that tons of people talk about and admire in our culture, like how much money you have, uh, how great is your job, how much materialistic thing you, stuff you've accumulated. But he said eulogy virtues are things that are talked about at your funeral. Whether you were kind, brave, honest, faithful, were you capable of deep love? He said this, if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It is easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. Sure, you'll grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You figure as long as you are not hurting, obviously hurting anybody, and people seem to like you, you're okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you and those incandescent souls you sometimes meet, who we will one day talk about for a long time after they die. Look, you're going to die. And no one's going to care how great you were at your job or what you collected. But what will last are the people that can see you and say, this person passed me a wedding invitation that changed my life. If you've never accepted that, what's keeping you right now? Look, God is inviting you to a party forever where the best moments in your life are nothing but a whisper of what is to come. And if you're bored with Christianity, start passing out invitations. There's nothing to magnify and ignite your longing for His presence and His return more than when you start to get other people involved in this. Jesus is asking you this now. 
You probably don't know who John Scully is, but he was the uh, COO of Pepsi in the early 80s. And Steve Jobs went to him and asked him to come help do this startup of this unknown technological company called Apple. In the early 80s, Apple was out of a garage, and Pepsi is one of the largest Fortune 500 companies in the world. And John Scully's like, why would I leave this secure million-dollar job to come on your teeny little startup? And Steve Jobs asked him, look, do you want to sell sugar water the rest of your life? Or do you want to change this world? And I'm asking you right now, do you just want to stare at your TV or your bank account the rest of your life? Or do you want to change this city? Those are the questions of Jesus from Revelation 19. Let's pray together. Lord, no other faith promises heaven to be like this. No other faith offers a God who says, we're not just permitted to be in His presence, but He wants to dine and celebrate in a wedding-like fashion with us and be our groom. Lord, everybody in this room knows somebody who needs an invitation. Lord, would you help us get the courage, the words, the wisdom to start reaching out and passing those around that your table would be full of the South Bay. Do a mighty work of your spirit, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.